welcome back to the podcast. This is the Educating All Learners Alliance podcast. I'm Gabrielle Oates, and today I am joined by Elizabeth Laird, who serves as the Center for Democracy and Technology's Director of their Equity in Civic Technology, uh, and also joined by Amanda Morin, who is the Associate Director of Thought Leadership and Expertise at Understood.org. So welcome, Elizabeth. Welcome, Amanda. How are you both? Hi, Gabrielle. I am doing great. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for having me, Gabrielle. It's, it's great to be here. Um, I wonder if we should identify ourselves. I'm Amanda, so you can recognize my voice. Oh, um, Elizabeth. Elizabeth. <laughs> Well, how about this? I did want to, um, as we share with listeners for today, some of the research, um, recent research from the Center for Democracy and Technology, which we'll call CDT. Great. Uh, and, and thank you for indulging another uh, acronym. I know we, uh, none of us need any more of those in our lives, especially in the special education community. So I'm sorry to introduce one more, but uh, thank you. It is much shorter than saying the full name. Um, so I am excited to uh, chat with you today about some research that we've done, and in particular focus on the, impl the implications for um, students with disabilities and special educators. Um, but to do that, I'll, I'll step back and just give you a little bit of background on, on why we did it. Um, so uh, for those of you who have uh, tuned in, uh, you have self-selected because perhaps you care about privacy, uh, but probably more importantly, you care about student safety and well-being. And at, the, at CDT, uh, we think part of that means that you're engaging those who have the most at stake in these conversations, who oftentimes have not been a part of them. Um, and so last, uh, last year, we uh, did some research of parents, teachers, and students, because we found that their voices are really critical and oftentimes uh, work that's happening uh, when it relates to data and technology and privacy is being done in spite of them, not with and for them. Um, and so we did some research on uh, what their views are toward privacy and data and technology. And one of the things that we found, which I'm excited to share with you is um, we found some bright spots. Uh, and so one of those bright spots was when we looked at um, what teachers knew about privacy, what kind of training they were receiving, um, who, who they were talking to, were they having these critical conversations with students and with families. Um, that as compared to their peers, we actually found that special educators were doing more of that. And, and candidly, that was not something we necessarily expected to see. And I've been working on data and technology and privacy for a while, and that dimension isn't one that's been talked about. And I think it matters because I think it speaks to this professional mindset that special educators have of valuing privacy, understanding it's not just an issue of legal compliance, but it's really about protecting and doing what's right for students, especially the most vulnerable. Um, and I think it's also important because it means that um, most schools have uh, this capacity already. You already have privacy leaders. Um, and oftentimes when you're looking at changing practices, it can feel overwhelming and daunting. But we heard in our focus groups that um, teachers are already looking to their special educator peers for advice on this. And so um, in, a, in a time when we don't always have good news to share, I'm excited to share that research and in particular the leadership role that special educators are playing when it comes to student privacy. Absolutely. There's been some incredible work in the field, and I know similar um, partners to ELA have recently been 
sharing that findings of whether that be research from the past year. And so in sharing CDT's research, it's great to know, like you said, that some of those resources in schools, such as special education teachers, are already there. They don't have to search for more information or more support. Um, and then, Amanda, I would love to hear from you a bit on sort of Understood's perspective around, you know, the the combination of special education and general education teachers in that space and what each, you know, has to offer with implementing better learning for students. I think the first thing I'd, I just, I love that it, that this research uncovered that general education teachers can be a leader here, because I think it's it's such a boon to lift up the expertise of teachers and really show that there's expertise beyond teaching in the classroom, that there are things that special education teachers know that they can become teacher leaders in their, in their classroom. And I think right now everybody needs to feel that boost and it's even better to be able to feel that boost um, in response to something that has been really remarkable in a way that we've never seen it in the world before. Um, to, to Elizabeth's point about acronyms, I think special education teachers, um, are very aware of FERPA, which is the Family Educational Rights and Privacy Act. Um, and they are using FERPA daily when they do individualized education programs and other acronym IEPs. They're looking to make sure that they're protecting student data. They're very aware of confidentiality and how what is said here stays here. And that changes in a virtual kind of environment, right? Because what is said here is a different here. And I think that here at Understood, one of the things we want to make sure of is that special educators have the ability to talk to general educators and families about how do we keep kids safe. And I think privacy is less about hiding things and more about protecting kids and data and making sure that it's going and being used in ways that is really supporting learning. And so as we think of uh, the value of prioritizing privacy, what are some of the risks that are posed by not prioritizing FERPA? I think that there, especially in a world where we're looking at virtual learning and virtual teletherapy in particular, when we talk about students who are in special education, there's a risk of sort of exposing their environment or exposing them, depending on where you as a teacher or service provider are providing teletherapy or where that student is having that come to them in their house, right? So there's a risk of sort of exposing their information in inadvertent ways. Uh, you don't always know who's listening. You don't always know who is around. In general education classrooms, there's always the opportunity to sort of take a child aside and have a private conversation. In virtual classrooms, that's not always an option. So teachers have to think twice and a little bit more thoughtfully, not that they're not thoughtful to start with, but more thoughtfully, about how am I going to address issues as they come up without disclosing details about accommodations and disabilities that might not be disclosed in other ways. So I think it's about it's safety. And I think there are things that we can do to make sure that we are giving kids the and, and families the opportunity to sort of consent. They have choice. I think about privacy in three C's, right? It's about consent, context, and choice. And it's making sure that people are consenting to what's happening and what's being exposed around them, that they have choice in when that happens and where that data goes. 
and that the context around privacy matters. If a student has a parent listening into their teletherapy, it may not be as concerning to their safety as if they have multiple teachers in the teacher's environment listening to their teletherapy at the same time. So you're thinking even for teachers who are in a physical room with other teachers and they're on a teletherapy appointment, even that situation is something to consider. That's a good point. Yeah, and I think that there are some ways to do that. And I think Elizabeth has some thoughts on that too. So I'm going to kick it to Elizabeth. I know she has some some great conversation around that. Thank you. Um, uh, and I just wanted to reinforce what Amanda was saying and, and Gabrielle, your question. And sometimes I think I'm a bad privacy advocate because um, as much as I, as I care about the law and, and, uh, and actually to add to our alphabet soup, we have FERPA, we also have IDEA, which has its own set of privacy requirements. And at the state level, we have almost 130 state student privacy laws. Um, and so as much as I, I, I care about not violating the law, I think what Amanda's talking about and what your question is getting at is, this is really about what's doing right for students. Um, and uh, something can be perfectly legal, it can even be secure, and it could still be a bad idea. Um, and so some of what Amanda's talking about is how do we center students in these conversations, especially those who um, are different or who have um, different needs and need to be protected. Um, and, you know, I think about the harms around, um, you know, bullying or further uh, stigmatizing students and, you know, they're coming to school to help them uh, you know, help them be the best that they can be. And that's how I think about privacy. And of course, as part of that, let's not break the law. But really, I think the law is the floor and not the ceiling. And where we want to be in our North Star is how do we center equity in all students in these conversations, especially those who um, have historically been marginalized. That's a great way to visualize it with the law as the floor and not the ceiling. I like that perspective. So it's something to go off of and frame your actions, but not necessarily to stop your actions from exceeding and progressing, you could say. I think that's a special education thought process as well, to be honest. There are many, many special education teachers who are well aware that when it comes to implementing special education services, there's compliance. There are laws around compliance. But what they do is go above and beyond, and they're making sure that students learn. So the in that regard, compliance, the law, is also the floor. But the ceiling is making sure they're doing everything they can to make sure students are learning, they're thriving, they're really getting the support and services they need. So I think it's a really good analogy that carries across all facets of teaching, actually. Yeah, I totally agree. So then just to go even further, what are some of the ways that privacy can impact the relationships and therefore trust with teachers, um, admin? I can speak to the parent perspective um, and to, to call back on our, on our survey. I've talked about what we saw in terms of teachers, but what we saw in terms of parents is that of the stakeholder groups who we talked to, they are the most concerned about privacy, six in 10 parents have some level of concern around privacy. And not only that, as they learn more about it, they get more concerned. Um, but the good news is that they generally do trust their school with that information. However, um, if something goes wrong or they get misinformation from another source, they are, they are um, susceptible to uh, uh, believing those things and, and having there be concerns where perhaps there shouldn't be. And so one of the things I think with privacy, which is 
not not legally required, but is a best practice is, you know, when it comes to collecting data or using technology, um, how can schools be transparent about, about what they're doing and how they are protecting students in that process? Um, because parents, uh, they, they do have a certain level of trust, but that trust can be broken um, if, if the school doesn't take care of that data or perhaps they get information that schools are not doing a good job of that. And so I think um, part of the trust here is just being transparent and proactively communicating, even though it's not legally required, is it is a guardrail to make sure that those things are used responsibly and students are kept protected. I think, you know, as a parent, I would jump in and say that that that's exactly the way I feel. And, and I, I know that our school district has been very transparent about their policies, and it's been a tremendous relief to me. I also know that teachers I know who are working in school districts have really appreciated that transparency as well, because a lot of teachers are also in remote situations. They have home lives as well, right? And they are trying to make sure that their privacy is protected the same way the privacy of their students is protected, because they don't necessarily want to reveal everything about their lives, which is, of course, contextual, right? There are contextual circumstances in which you re reveal everything about your lives. Um, you know, a, a dog here and there is, is not a privacy issue, but you don't want to have your child's Zoom class going on in the background while you're doing a Google Meet with your classroom, too. Um, so I think one of the things that really helps administrators and teachers work together is to have an understanding of what protections are in place for everybody, everybody in the situation. How are the students being protected? How are teachers being protected? What data is being collected and for what purpose? And I think that in itself is really important. Um, and I know a lot of school districts are working with technology platforms to make sure they understand what data is collected by the technology platform itself and not just through the school district. Um, because we wanna make sure that that data that's being collected is really going back into making sure students are learning. It is being used to support really smart decisions about how we teach and not just to have that data. Now, outside of the actions that individual teachers could take, do you have recommendations of questions that teachers could ask their schools or that parents could ask their teachers to know some of these privacy standards that are being upheld? Um, I can speak to the, the parent equation because we did um, a set of focus groups on this very question. Um, and so some of the things that we learned, and we, we um, uh, actually produced a guide of questions that parents could go and ask their schools. So um, perhaps listeners, uh, they can find that on our website at cdt.org. Um, but we found a few things. One is that parents really want to understand and know what their legal rights are. And they want um, to be empowered to use them and that there's not uh, always awareness, even though the law that um, Amanda mentioned, FERPA, uh, is actually from 1974, so it's not a new law, it's anything but a new law. Um, there's still not a lot of awareness around the rights that it affords parents, therefore they're not exercising them. Um, so I think one thing is, is um, and through this guide, um, you know, can help parents do that, but just familiarize yourself with what, um, what your legal rights are, but then also, um, you know, as the law is the floor, not the ceiling, also asking questions about how your school are, is doing some of the things that we've been talking about. What are their policies? Um, what data are they collecting? How are they keeping it safe? How long are they keeping it? 
one of the things that we hear uh, fears around is students will accumulate a permanent record that will follow them around. And, you know, what happened to you when you were in first grade will be used by your high school guidance counselor to decide or maybe limit opportunities for you. Um, and so it sounds technical and, and boring, but actually it's really important because the way that you address that is you don't keep data forever um, or you don't keep data that, that isn't, ne isn't needed or could be used out of context. Um, so I think when it, when it came to our conversations with parents, they wanted to understand their rights. They wanted to understand what other kinds of questions that they should ask. And also like, what's a reasonable response, right? Um, you know, sometimes uh, what a parent may want may not be entirely reasonable. And so explaining why that is. Um, an example is there's a, a parental right around um, correcting inaccurate data. Well, you can't say, I think my child's F is wrong and instead they deserve an A plus. Like, you know, that's not a right that parents have. Um, but if there's some kind of inaccuracy, they do. Um, so I think that's part of, of what we heard from parents is wanting to know their rights and wanting to know, you know other kinds of questions about what schools are doing to keep them safe and what, what reasonable responses could look like to have a constructive dialogue. What they did not want is um, someone to tell them the answer. They wanted to, to know the questions to ask and, and take that information and then decide for themselves what they think is right for their child. And that's a lot of what privacy is about. It's about um, not keeping something secret. It's about individuals getting to decide what is shared or not shared about them. Um, and so if you are a parent of a student with a disability, you can totally tell people that that's your choice and that's the right we're protecting and that that decision is not made for you by a school or a bureaucracy of which I, you know, worked for, for five years. <laughs> so um, anyway, so that's what we heard from parents and I, I would uh, encourage parents to get involved and ask questions with the caveat that the burden to protect privacy does not fall on their shoulders. That is a, a school responsibility with which they are responsible um, and so schools should have good answers to these questions. And this is only going to become increasingly important and pertinent for schools. So we really encourage parents and then um, teachers similarly to ask some of those questions of your schools if you don't already know. And I think the, the questions that teachers ask can be the same ones that parents are asking. I think sometimes we think there are parent questions and there are teacher questions, but they're actually much closer together than we, we really think about sometimes. You know, how is it protected? Who has access? Um, even simple things like how are we password protecting documents that go out to parents? You know, IEPs, um, the Individualized Education Programs, there are electronic consent. Parents can consent to have them sent to them electronically, but they still need to be password protected. And one of the things that I think both teachers and parents need to ask is, what is the password that we're using? Not for, not for every IEP, but is there a consistent way in which we're doing that? So if a parent is stuck trying to get into that document, is there a format that we can go back to and look at and that is personal to each student, but also a predictable format? And I think that works for teachers too. Um, we don't want to overload people with different ways of protecting privacy, but I think to make sure that there are standards in place is incredibly important. I do wanna mention that um, understood.org worked in conjunction with Coloring Colorado to talk about this issue in particular with English language learners. There were some privacy concerns that came around families who may be undocumented or families who may have um, concerns about domestic violence in their family and that there are reasons why sometimes it's okay for kids not to be on camera 
that there are reasons why we don't want their faces shown, that there are reasons why there are um, screen capture tools that can record just what a teacher is presenting as opposed to the entire class that's happening on the screen with them as well. Um, and that's actually, that's um, that piece is on our site as well as Cologne, Colorado's. Um, and I think it was really valuable to think through the extra steps that may happen in certain types of families as well. Yeah, those are great points. And now I know you both uh, mentioned them briefly, but if you could share for everybody, where can they find more information on CDT and Understood and find these resources that you've mentioned? Um, well, I will, I guess, end where we started, which, which is with an acronym. <laughs> so our website is cdt.org, um, and a number of the resources that I talked about, including the research, our parents' guide to privacy, and um, other, other guidance that we put out uh, is available there. And I think I'll add to the acronyms, and you can just go to u.org or understood.org. And we do have a section specifically on distance learning and all of the information around privacy can be found in that section in distance learning. And u.org is very easy to remember. I like that one a lot. Yes, so definitely check out the resources that were mentioned. Check out Understood and CDT's website. Uh, thank you both for joining us today. And for listeners, of course, you can always find more information of what we've discussed on the educatingalllearners.org website. Um, you can also follow along with the Educating All Learners Alliance on Twitter. Our handle is at educateall underscore org. And you can watch some of our webinars, recordings, um, and other information on our YouTube channel at Educating All Learners. Until next time, this is the Educating All Learners Alliance podcast.